This week on the Borag World Show, we're joined by Lisa Reichelt to discuss user research, its importance and where to begin. This week's show is sponsored by the wonderful people at MailChimp and Media Temple. Welcome to BoagWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul and joining me as always is Marcus. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Paul. How are you today? Where are uh, you today? Where am I? Yes, very good point. I'm off in the motorhome. I'm in sunny Minehead at the moment, just off, uh, just outside of Exmoor. We're heading slowly westward into Cornwall. And it's gorgeous and it's lovely and I've been seeing castles and 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 wandering around National Trust Gardens and eating cream teas. How divine. Um, yes, it's gorgeous here today, actually, although it's supposed to be um, clouding over a bit tomorrow, which is a shame. But um, oh. we've been, I, bet I've, I had a cup of tea and some cake in the garden earlier. Oh, well, that's very civilised. It was cold, but it was kind of like not so cold that I, I actually managed to drink the entire cup of tea. Well, we're, we're British, aren't we? <laughs> yes. So we have to go outside at the first <laughs> glimmer of sunlight. Yeah, well, Caroline made me because I've been, as you know, I've been sick, boy. And she said, you've got to come outside to get some fresh air. And all that oh, you're not still ill. Um, on, just on the end of it, I will cough at some point and you'll hear it and it sounds still sounds nasty. But I'm past the worst of it by a long way. Good. Just got an Good. irritating cough now. One of those tickly ones that won't go away. Oh, yeah. I'm fed up with talking about it because my life's perfect at the moment, so I don't want to hear about your your ills. <laughs> See, there we go. <laughs> I want to I want to live in blissful isolation in my perfect little camper van world. Where uh, did you see that green screen? I did right. So I've, we've been recording video while away. And it looks like I'm in an amazing office, and it's great, isn't it? For, for about a second, I thought, bloody hell, Paul's done his office up. <laughs> yes! Ah, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty good, you know, that yeah. it, it fooled you. Yeah, so, yeah and that, definitely. And that was recorded in the back of a motorhome with no nat- no proper lighting, just uh, just natural light, and it was really good. I came out really well. So I'm never, ever going home ever again. You'd like that, wouldn't you? I would. You'd get grubbier and grubbier, though. What do you mean, grubbier? (laughs) You ought to see this motor, it's not grubby. Let me reassure you of that. (laughs) You haven't got, like, a kind of full walk-in shower or anything like that, have you? Uh, yes. Really? A a walk-in shower cubicle with a door that closes. Yes. And that come and the water comes out. I comes don't know, out of a proper shower head. Yes. Yeah. At about one mile an hour, if you're lucky. No. No. Yes. Seriously, the only <laughs> problem you have is that the water of, of runs out quite reasonably quickly. Right. But it comes out at exactly the same power as it would do at home. Mm, so there you go. I don't so you, believe you. You well, you see. That's if you you just stick to your, you know, single house world while I travel and see the glory of the world around me. You do that, Paul. I kind of like my house. Well, yeah, you're you don't like to, you're not a huge traveller, are you? You're no. quite. You've got your group of friends. You've got your local pub. That's what you like, isn't it? Absolutely. Which Lovely, is fair enough. Nice places to go and walk, and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm yes. happy. Very easily pleased me. Yes, while well, I'm not easily pleased at all, <laughs> but I'm very much enjoying enjoying blurring the lines between work and 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 like life, which is nice. You know, do a bit of work, go off, kind of go for a walk a bit, come back, do a bit more work, work a bit in the evenings. It's it's great. It's great. I'm very happy. So if you're going down the north side of Cornwall Somerset. and Devon, yeah, you're you know, Somerset at the moment. You will be. You'll go past where I was born. Oh, will we? Bideford. Ex- 
in right. Devon. Uh, and then you a bit further on from there, you get to Clavelli. That's great. You must, you must drop into Clavelli. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to going and seeing the monument in your hometown to you. Because, I mean, no doubt there is one. <laughs> I could tell you the house that I was born in. Is there, is there a plaque outside? Of Marcus is. Lillington One from of those Breeze. blue ones, you know, a blue yeah. round plaque, yeah. <laughs> um, Marcus Lillington was born here. Uh, yes. 48 years ago. My uh, word. Uh, yeah, so um, Biddeford's a nice little town. Um, Clavelli's lovely. Um, there, But if you keep going down into Cornwall, you get to... Oh, I can't remember what it's called. The really famous castle. Obviously not that famous, because I can't remember what it's called. Tresomething. Oh, tr- uh, tr- um, yeah, neither can I now. <laughs> yes, we, that was on our list of places to go. That's so fantastic. That's kind of cool. And, the, and you can, if you get down on the beach when the sea's out, you can walk underneath the cave to the next beach. It's like, ooh, I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite envious. Yeah, it's all very exciting. I love all that part of the world. So, um, should we talk about this week's show? Oh, Devon and Cornwall are much more interesting. I know, but, you know, people expect us... No, actually, I, if, if I was today's guest, I would be deeply insulted by that. You're saying that Lisa is not a good guest. <coughs> I didn't say that. I said it's, it's more interesting than talking about sponsors. There you go. Oh, I like the way you transferred into sponsors. <laughs> there. Because we do need to talk about our first sponsor, which is MailChimp, are back again. Mm-hmm. God, I like this when people keep giving us money. It's very nice of them. So MailChimp... Oh, now look what I've just done. I was just about to go into the talking about MailChimp, and now I've lost the script that tells me what I've got to say about MailChimp. Because you, you need a script. I have to be... I have, Well, no, actually, not with <laughs> MailChimp or, or Media Temple. I know them both really well, but I kind of make a few notes. And actually, it's not... Although I know MailChimp very well, they, they do a lot of things that I didn't realise they did. You know when you use a product all the time and you kind of get it into your head, use certain things. It's like Photoshop. You only ever know about like a tenth of the things that they do. Um, That's generous with my yeah, exactly. Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but MailChimp do lose that. For example, I didn't know how much research they do into user behaviour um, and how users kind of use email and, and respond to email, which sectors have got the best open rates and all this kind of stuff. So they've got loads of information freely available. You don't need to be a MailChimp customer to make use of those. They've also got a great blog, um, which I uh, now I've discovered it, I've actually subscribed to. Um, Because, again, loads of kind of research and user behavior kind of information um, uh, and advice about email marketing generally. So there's that to check out as well. Um, And, of course, all of this advice and research that they're providing just helps you improve the campaigns, which is why they do it, obviously, because they want to see you get a big um mailing list and they want to see you you know have a lot of success with your email campaign so they provide all of this additional information for free but they don't just do it for their customers although obviously it's going to help their customers they do it for everybody um which i think is a really great attitude and i love that kind of open attitude Mm. um but it will improve your campaigns and why if you're going to learn all these wonderful things not to make use of the company that has provided you with this incredible information um and as i have said many times before on this show um you can get two thousand subscribers on your mailing list and not pay a penny for to nothing. mailchimp nothing for at nothing all. exactly i like good deals like that and for a long time it they suck you in mind it's evil really because <laughs> you know you build up your mailing list and of course they've got all these these export options so you could in theory take it away but you hit your two thousand as i did and it's like i can't be bothered to move i'll just stay here and I've been kind of happy with them ever since. So there you go. So they suck you in. Mm-hmm. You just Ooh. called. You just called our sponsor evil. Yeah, evil suckers. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not a good thing, right? Uh, well, I don't know. Depends what they're kind of what what. what no, 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 no. They've what, got what, a sense what, of humour. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm, I'm sure they have. Yeah, I mean, they they have um, a a you know a chimp as their logo normally that's doing some kind of rude activity so they've definitely got a sense of humor <laughs> so find out more about them at baragworld.com forward slash mailchimp um so that's that yeah so interview lisa i hate i'm terrified of lisa's second name do you want me to say it yeah go on it's reichelt oh i did say it right then because i say it in the pre-roll and i wonder whether i got it wrong and <laughs> have to re-record the pre-roll <laughs> 
Lisa Reichelt is on the show today. It's a very German name, isn't it? It is, yes. Uh, uh, except she's Australian, living in England. Very confusing. There you go. But she's absolutely awesome. Lisa Lisa is brilliant. She's got an amazing mind, um, very, very insightful. You can tell she's incre- an incredible person because she was the editor of my book, Digital Adaptation. <laughs> By editor, I mean kind of technical advisor editor. Not technical as in coding, but, you know, I I passed everything I did by her um, because she's done the stuff that, you know, she's lived what I was writing about on a daily basis. So I wanted her kind of opinion on it all. Um, So she must be amazing if she's associated with me. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. People expect a certain level of arrogance from me. (laughs) It would be wrong without it, wouldn't it? I would disappoint them. <laughs> so there you go. So she actually works as the head of user research at the Government Digital Service, and I'm forever banging on about gov.uk. They got a bit of uh, um, a trouncing recently. Yeah, on Reddit. Yes. Yeah. It made me a bit annoyed, that that post. I think there was a load of people, basically there's a load of people who moan about it. Right, and and if you go in the comments, there's loads of people moaning. Oh, you can't do this, can't yeah. do that, and can't do the other. Now, the problem is, is that in every single case I was reading about on there, right, it was either people that had had a problem in the early days when they they first set up the website, and they always said from the very beginning, this is a site that evolves and improves over the time. So, for example, I had an argument with somebody. Oh. Yeah, I found it really difficult to find out what age you can start to learn to drive, right? And I was thinking, that's a really main use case. I can't believe that. And I did it. I went to gov.uk and I typed in age of driving and it instantly turned up the right result. And I said, oh, when did you do, when when did you have this problem? Oh, like 1996 or something, you know, it wasn't that far back, but it was in the very early days of gov.uk. So there's that kind of thing. And then most of the complaints really are about obscure edge cases. And the, the argument is, is that the gov.uk site is dumbed down. It's not serving, you know, these kind of more obscure, you know, use cases that exist. But the truth is, I don't see why, you know, 10% of people should, yeah, sorry, 90% of people should suffer for the needs of 10%. And if 10% have to work harder to find what they're after, then I think that's fine. That's just good web design, in my opinion. Anyway. Good web design is surely reduced that to 0.1%. And they will do. But it's going to take time for you to get to that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, and it's always going to be the case that the only way that you can make the use case simpler for the majority is to make things slightly harder for the minority to find. It's just the reality of it. Um, you know, or... You're shoving them, you know, they, you, you, the, the, um, they're promoting subdomains or put, referring people directly to, to specific parts of the site and that kind of stuff. You know, it, you cannot have one site that does all things for all people. But on the other hand, having a plethora of different government sites makes it hard for the vast majority of people to find anything because they're going from one site to the other. So, yes, it's an interesting debate, isn't it? It is. And actually, I think I'm even more pro gov.uk than lisa is because of course lisa is seeing the nitty-gritty behind the scenes all the time and i don't think she takes she fully appreciates how good a thing they've managed to create together at least in my opinion so she she leads basically she's the head of of user research at government digital service um and she's leads leading and building a team of of um user researchers now i don't i just think this is great they have teams of user researchers how cool is that most organizations won't bloody pay for one usability test session <laughs> let alone having teams of usability uh, user researchers and they work as part of their kind of agile multidisciplinary teams as you'll hear in a minute in the interview um, she's a regular speaker, workshopper, all that kind of stuff. So I've got so much time for Lisa. So here is the interview I did with her. Marcus, were you on this one? You weren't, I were you? I was, yes. You were? Yes, okay. I think. Well, <laughs> so you've no idea of you. <laughs> no, I'm pretty anyway, sure I was. here's the interview. Hi, Lisa. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It's very much appreciated. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And it's really nice to actually talk to you like we still haven't met face to face, but we mainly communicated via you picking apart my last book. 
That was very fun, though, wasn't it? It was fun, actually. I, I really enjoyed the entire experience. It was good. I, I have, sorry, Lisa, to interrupt, but I have, I've edited your work many times in the past, and I wouldn't have described it as fun, Paul. Yeah, well, Lisa didn't have to edit it in terms of grammar and things like that. She just had I to I tried argue. to, but you kept stopping me. <laughs> yeah, that was good. And also we were using that nice software that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, editorially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of fun as well. It was. It was a nice bit of software. So, obviously, we've got you on the show to talk about user experience. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, user research, because that's what, explain, I get very confused. What is your job? You work for gov.uk. I work uh, for GDS. Right. One of the things that GDS does is gov.uk, but we do lots of other stuff as well. I knew that. Yeah. No, you didn't. I know I didn't. <laughs> so what is it, what's your job title and what does that actually involve? I am the head of user research here at GDS. And that involves lots of different things. Um, one of the main things that it involves is trying to kind of grow the, the practice and the capability within government, within GDS and sort of more broadly within government around doing user research when we're designing digital services. Um, so that means trying to make sure that the right people are involved in projects at the right time and doing the right things um, and that people who run projects have got kind of a better idea of what good looks like when it comes to doing user research in their projects as well. Sure. And then we've got a community of user researchers in GDS and also throughout government. And we um, learn a lot from working with each other about, you know, um, how to how to do our jobs better and in particular how to do them kind of in a government context better as well. Um, so there's all of that and giving people lots of different advice and Sticking my nose into projects where probably people don't want me to stick my nose into, that kind of thing. So, yeah, all of that. So, uh, I mean, you talk about user research. Yeah. That's, that's a relatively, as a discipline, to be a user researcher is a relatively new thing. In, so? in, well, in the... As we've gone along in the web, think we've become more and more specialised, haven't we? You know that you used to be a you know a user experience designer, or you know, and so to see it, I'm just waffling now. But to, I, I, it's not a term I've come across as you know much in the past as I'm coming across it now, and I'm interested in. Do you feel it's evolving as a separate discipline um, outside of larger organisations or is it still the preview of, you know, big organisations such as yours? No, I think, well, so I think it's been, I think it's probably been called different things in different places at different Ah. times. But I think, well, you know, this is what we do. We rename ourselves all the time. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there's a long, there's a long history of people uh, kind of observing what, how people are currently solving problems and how effectively new solutions are uh, meeting people's needs in solving problems. Like we've been doing that since forever. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and so so people who do this kind of work to often will come from a background of kind of anthropology maybe or psychology, that yeah. kind of thing. And those, you know, the, the, doing research in those kind of contexts goes back since, you know, I, I, I'd hate to think how long, a long time. Yeah. So, so it's kind of for me. It's sort of like applying um, really quite old techniques, but just in a, a relatively new environment of digital services. Yeah, I think more more for me, it's been uh, seeing that as a separate and unique full-time role within a web team rather than uh, something that's tagged onto the end of the, you know, the edge of a designer's job or, uh, you know, or, or whatever else that it, it's becoming seen as a more and more important component that, you know, you need somebody constantly researching and understanding the user's behavior. I think that's what I was driving at really. very. Yeah, and I, I think you're right about that. I think that um, organizations have to reach a certain level of maturity before they sort of recognize the value mm. that doing this kind of work in an ongoing way brings to their ability to design good services. Mm. So I, I think that, you know, we're much more familiar with maybe doing a bit of kind of upfront research and then doing some usability testing at the end. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's, that's Rubbish. just, a, well, <laughs> I was going to say it's like an immature sort of stage 
that that companies kind of get to where they're where they're sort of dipping their toes in mm. and you know hopefully they will kind of continue to mature if they see the value in it and and do it kind of in a richer and more useful way but you know there there are plenty of organizations who kind of do both of those bits not particularly well and so it's going to be difficult for them to kind of move forward mm. so talk us through then what your more matured role looks like you know what in terms of what are you actually doing what types of research are you doing how does that fit alongside the kind of project life cycle and that kind of thing yeah okay so for the way that we work here we sort of start with a discovery phase at the beginning which is a relatively short phase so because it's all relative isn't it um probably you know eight to 12 weeks you're Mm -hmm. looking at for a discovery phase and in that stage what we're what we're doing there most usually is contextual research so going out and trying to understand how people are solving the problem that we want to help solve better at the moment okay for 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 government and for loads of other organizations as well i think you're not solving a brand new problem usually you're trying to solve a problem that already exists yeah and so people people are doing the job that you're trying to help them do more effectively or more delightfully or whatever it is that you're trying to help them do it um and going out and understanding what they're actually doing right now what their what their real problems are what their real experience right now is is a very good way to start your project Mm. Uh, because if you start in a place that's kind of not based in reality then it's kind of it's difficult to get it right after that. So that's the first thing that we do is go out and kind of understand what are people actually doing when they're trying to do the thing that's going to involve the service that we're designing. Um, try to understand what, what, the, what the needs are that they have so mm-hmm. that we can understand how to design services that will meet those needs. So that's a lot of contextual research is going out and, and into the place where people are doing the thing that they're trying to do. So you know that could be in their home or in their office or it could be in a passport office or it could be or you know lots of different places yeah um that so that's that's kind of the first stage and from that you've got this sort of foundation of understanding what the user journey is and understanding what the user needs are and then you can start thinking about what service are we going to how are we going to design a solution that's going to make this experience better for people so that's stage one. Then what we go into is is the, the the set of stages where we start to build solutions that we think might meet the need. And for us, that starts with alpha, where we really quickly kind of put together like a proof of concept, really, or, or a bunch of proof of concepts to see which one has got you know, the, the best legs on it. Um, and then when we're doing research, we start to work really closely with the designers and the front-end developers and the content people and the product owners um, uh, in particular, to make prototypes and put them in front of people as quickly as we can and get feedback on what's working and what's not, what's understood, what's not understood, so that we can do an iteration of the prototype and take it back out again and, and start to get this iterative cycle happening really quickly. Because mm-hmm. I think that's that's how you get to the best design outcome is by getting it wrong really fast, really early and learning why it's wrong and then starting to kind of experiment with how you can make it better along the way and that's pretty much what we do from there on um and for us that could so what we try to do here is make sure that within every iteration which is kind of roughly about every two weeks you're doing a round of research so you're not doing too much designing before you're putting it back in front of people again and getting that reality check that you get from real users um so we would very often get five or six people and bring them into a lab and do a, a mixture of a kind of uh, an, a bit of an interview with them to understand who they are and, and you know to understand the attributes that they have that can impact whether they interact better or worse with the service mm-hmm. um, and then we would give them some basic kind of task-based usability stuff and see see how they go with with what we've designed so far and we might start doing that you know just with paper to begin with uh, we move pretty quickly into code here because we've got proper multidisciplinary teams so it's easy to get things into code quickly so we tend not to go down the wireframe path too much mm-hmm. um, and then as the project matures you get opportunities to do different kinds of research to solve different kinds of problems. So you might you might have something you might have to make like a really really important design decision that you're just not going to be completely convinced by seeing five or six people whether or not it's the right thing to do. So we might do a larger scale uh, 
piece where we will put a, a, a prototype online and put lots of analytics into it and and put some surveys maybe at either end of it and run hundreds of people through that to see what behaviours they exhibit and and how that impacts on the way that they comprehend and respond to the prototype and various things like that. So we, that's sort of a larger scale tests that we can do that give us kind of greater volumes but are still very tied into the actual design decisions that are being made. Mm. Uh, um, so the, the, it's, the, that's kind of one example of things that we do. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots, there's a, a, a huge toolkit of different kinds of research that you can do. And it's just a matter of kind of trying to match the, the understanding of what your research question is and then thinking about what's the best way that we can do some research to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you talk about different tools there and having a toolkit of stuff to draw upon. So you've already mentioned what surveys, analytics, usability testing. Can I just um, ask a quick question about the usability testing? So if you get five or six people in it, yeah. are you trying to kind of fit people very closely to um, the actual end user or are you just sort of getting anyone in to kind of test what you're designing and sort of anyone's better than no one kind of thing? No, we take we take our recruitment pretty seriously. So we want to try to make sure that the people who are coming in are representative of people who would actually use the service. So if we're designing uh, a service for farmers to use, then pretty much what we spend our time doing and then is going out and finding farms, trying to hook up to internet from the farm and, and doing the test there. Um, or we'll it, you know we'll also just be, we use um, recruitment companies research recruitment companies and we'll give them a screener to say here's the kind of people that we want and they will find those particular people for us so we try yeah it's i think it's um it is really important to make sure that the people that you're seeing are representative of the audience that are going to be using it and even when you've got like a the whole of the uk audience which we often do mm. there's going to be kind of little subsets of people within that that um that are going to have a particular kind of need so um, for example, when we were doing the design work for uh, the individual electoral registration, I hope I got those words right, uh, you know, there, there were loads of little subgroups within there that, that had sort of specialist needs, like kids that were off at university, for example, you know, where they they kind of have two addresses, for example. So where do they register to vote and how can we design that so that it makes sense to them and people who are in the military and people who are abroad and you know, all of these like little edge cases. So we needed to go out and find those specific people to make sure that the way that we were designing it worked for them as well as for kind of general public. I mean, that sounds like a massive undertaking, mm. you know, to, to deal with all of those different edge cases and to, uh, and to find those people. Because that's always, that's always the big one that I think for a lot of organisations just stumps them is, mm. is, is getting a hold of people to test that are representative, especially if you're talking about a commercial organization, they can't really kind of wander up to their clients and say, well, they probably can to some of their friendlier clients. But then there's, you know, how do you approach prospective clients and get them to do it? It's quite a tricky business recruitment, isn't it? It is. It's a real skill to, so I, so I guess the, the first thing is that you need to, you need to be really clear about who it is that you want to talk to. Um, so writing a screener that's going to get you the people that you want um, is 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 a bit of a skill. It's not it's not rocket science. It's not that hard. I mean, as an organisation, you should kind of know who would be people who would be most likely to potentially become your um, your customers in the future, your clients in the future. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be too hard to make a profile of that and go and find them. If you're a commercial, the tricky thing can be about, um, you know, how, how open you want to be about you as a brand, mm-hmm. exploring the different kind of directions that you're going in. Um, so that's, you know, you, some people get a bit sensitive about that, but that's not too difficult to manage. You can just make up a, you know, make up a fake brand, pretend you're, you know, a new company that nobody's heard of. You lose a lot of the benefit of, you know, the, 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 the value that your brand would bring. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's always doable. The thing is that you want to start at the beginning with the the easiest possible people. Yeah. So don't worry at the beginning about identifying all of the subgroups and all of that kind of thing because you you should you'll just you'll get to them as you need to. If you if you start to think about all of that complexity, you won't do anything. 
So we always start with the, like the, the low-hanging fruit of all of the people who should be able to do this and should want to do this. Go and find a handful of them and start with them and you will still learn so much from them. And then, you know, once, you've, once everything's fine for them, if it ever is, once, you know, once you've got, that working, got, got the experience working for them really well, then go, okay, well, who else? You know, where, where else do we think there could be some, some complexity and go and do that? Mm. So, so that's, that's the way that we approach it. And the more you learn about what's working and what's not working and where the tricky bits are, the, you know, the, 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 the process will kind of teach you who you should go and see next. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that. And I mean, there must be a degree as well where it depends on what you're trying to find out as to what kind of people you need in the sense that, you know, if you're doing straight usability testing, um, you know, it, it may be that the demographics on some of that usability testing is less important than, say, if you were trying to do user research and you were trying to understand the user better. Because, you know, some problems that you encounter in usability testing, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you would still stumble at the same kind of hurdles. Is that a fair comment? I think so. I think so. Um, but, but uh, I mean, you mentioned demographics. I think. Uh, of the time we get really hung up on demographics when they don't actually really matter that much yeah that's so you, what i was getting at really you just you want to pick out the things about what is it about people who would use this service that makes them different to other people mm. then are there any kind of variabilities within that that's really important so for example if we're going and seeing students for electoral registration we're not we, we don't it doesn't matter to us whether they're mathematics students or humanities students or like that doesn't matter yeah probably doesn't even matter if they're male or female might matter a little bit how old they are, but probably not. Probably the main thing that matters is that they've got two addresses. Yeah. And um, maybe it matters if they're in London or, you know, in, in a regional area. Right. So you just you want to pick out only the things that really matter. You don't, you know, again, you want to reduce the complexity as much as you can because it's more important that you do some of this than that you do, that you do it perfectly. Yeah. Because I do think a lot of people give up on this kind of stuff because they're overwhelmed by the potential complexity of it all. So they just throw their hands up in the air and, you know, go, well, there's no way I can do this. And that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's why one of the things that we've done a lot here is really try to simplify the guidelines of what to do. So, you know, so we say make sure you've got a researcher in the team for at least three days a week. Make sure that you're doing research every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Make sure that everyone in the team is coming and watching the research at least these two hours every six weeks so we make these little sort of guidelines and we'll say you know for when you in those two weeks get six people in do a little bit of interviewing at the beginning just to understand who they are and what they understand about the service and then do some task-based stuff and then do your analysis like this so we we try to we try to make it as you know as simple as possible and then once you start doing that you you learn enough about it that you can go okay we need to do something a bit more complicated now yeah start with something really really simple um, and 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 just get the ball rolling, and that's the most important thing. Once you get started doing this, you get a bit addicted to it, and you want more, and you learn more, and you get better at it. But but you know, it, and even the best teams, if they stop doing this, it's really hard to kind of get back into it again. So mm-hmm. you just need to just need to keep your hand in and keep doing it on a regular basis. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the things you touched on there was, um, you know, getting the whole team to watch the usability testing. Um, So there's another aspect to this, which is not just doing the research, but then communicating the research and allowing that to actually impact the final product rather than it just being. Because a number of times I know people that have created personas and then they've been shoved in a drawer somewhere and forgotten. So how, how do you ensure that this kind of gets this, this, all this research you do actually makes a difference to the final product? So that's incredibly important. That's, that's the thing that I think we are most, most concerned with is to make sure that, that we're not just doing this for the sake of it and we're not doing stuff that people go, oh, that's a really interesting story and then just getting on with what they were going to do anyway. Yeah. Um, and, we 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 were talking about this at the end of last year and thinking about you know what's what's the proportion of time that we spend doing the different kinds of things that we do as researchers and um, we worked out that probably we spend about thirty percent of our time doing the research and about seventy percent of the time trying to communicate the research yeah that, that's kind of what's the breakdown is so when people say you know oh, I don't need a, a researcher full time in my 
team because I only want to do a bit of research once or twice, you know, a month. Um, that's that's what they spend the rest of the time doing is mm-hmm. making sure that you're actually getting value from the research. And it, it takes takes a lot of effort. Um, so for us, things that we do is that we really, 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 really encourage the, the, as many people in the team as possible to come and watch the research on a regular basis. Um, if you've got smart people in your team and they are watching people using the service regularly, you almost don't need to do any analysis because mm-hmm. they see so much stuff that's kind of that they, they really understand is problematic. And particularly getting senior people to come along regularly as well gives them a, a realistic sense of how well the project is going. Yeah. Um, which is really important and can help them make good decisions about budgets and timelines and how they talk about the project to their bosses and all of those kinds of things that can get projects in trouble um, frequently. Getting people to come and watch research is really useful for that. And the other thing is that a lot of the time the things that cause you big problems with user experience are not things that you can solve in the interface. They're business process things mm. or marketing things or there's stuff that's kind of that you, you can't fix on a wireframe or in a prototype. So getting more senior people in the organization who've got kind of a purview across the broader organization, not just the digital side of things, is really useful for them unblocking those other aspects that are causing you problems but that you can't solve. Um, so, so that's really important to us. And so we always, you know, we've got posters that say user research is a team sport. Um, that's, that's something that's really important to us. We always are saying that we don't do user research for us. We do user research for the team. And our job is not to understand end users. Our job is to make sure that our team understands the end users and, and, and how well our service is meeting their needs. So it's, it's, we try to think of ourselves kind of as being facilitators rather than owners of the research, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So yeah. what do you do beyond the, the, you know, getting somebody to come in and sit in a usability session? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can understand that. But what about in terms of of getting a sense of who these people are that mm-hmm. you're serving? Because, because that's where you really start to empathize with people. That's where you start to think of the nuances of their, their context, etc. How do you communicate that to your team? So, again, um, wherever possible, we get them to come along to do contextual visits as well. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. So we'll, we'll try and have, uh, you know, set up a series of interviews and then we'll get, you know, one person at a time to come with the researcher yeah. um, and be, you know, kind of like a glorified note taker. But, they're, you know, so they, they, they might take some notes, which would be useful. But most of the time, what they're there for is really just to actually see for themselves what a real person is like and what, what a real lived experience is like for these people. Mm. So we do that. The other thing that we do is we, we try to tell a lot of stories. So we tend not to use personas a lot. Um, some projects do, but, but it's not something that we do a huge amount of. But what we do instead is we tell lots of individual stories. Right. So, so we'll come back and we'll say, we went out and we met this person and, and this is their story. And, and this is, these are the problems that they came up against. And this is, you know, this is, here's some pictures of inside their home and, and all that kind of stuff. So really sort of bring that to life. Um, and that, that works really well. People, mm. people love getting the, I mean, at the moment, the, just the way that we do it is just at the end of a day of research, you'll sit down and just write the stories. We went out and saw Hannah, and this is her story. We went out and saw Bob, and this was his story. Um, and just email that out to the team that's, you know, that's interested in the research for their project. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really powerful. Um, and then the other thing that we like to try to do is to try to build models of what we know as well. So try to, try to c- condense all of this down into kind of a way of visualizing um, the, the knowledge so that, you know, it's something that people can draw. Um, and and that, that's quite helpful as well. So it might be like the stages of a user journey that people go through. Or it could be, you know, um, uh, it could be a, a model of different kind of information sources and which ones are trusted and which ones aren't, various things like that. So it's like breaking things down into like little nuggets of knowledge that people can um, – kind of access easily when they're thinking about how to do the design. Um, but that's not not kind of dug into a persona too, too much. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You've talked a lot about going and meeting with users and interviewing users and going to their homes, etc. 
What about the analytics side of things? Because data can become very overwhelming Mm. um, and and very abstract for people. So do you do use that much when you're communicating with your teams or is that that when you're getting more into kind of specific, you know, people are dropping out at this point, we've got a problem here kind of stuff? Yeah, so we use data a lot to um, to kind of support what we're finding in research. Mm. So it's really important that that um, that we can sort of triangulate what we think we know from what we're observing and what people are saying with the actual real behavior as well. Yeah. So yeah, we use we use the analytics on the site to um, to tell us what you know what people are doing to confirm whether or not sort of different things that we're seeing, particularly like if you you know another you go and you do usability testing, you see five or six people do something, you think probably that's a thing, and then you can go back and have a look at the analytics and see whether there's anything there to support whether or not you know that problem exists or that behavior exists. So that's that's a good way of kind of helping to validate the, what mm. you're seeing in, in the core research. Um, we also have like little feedback forms on the site as well where, you know, anybody who's using it on a regular basis can kind of say when something went wrong. Theoretically, they can say when something went right. Um, <laughs> and, and then going back and kind of looking through all of that as well is a really good way to, to again, sort of triangulate the data and the research with the feedback and, and just make sure that, that everything makes sense together. Because the thing with data, I think, is that it, it it's really hinges on what question you ask. Mm. So, yes. so you can look at data thinking that you're trying to prove something and you, it's, it's almost like you can make it, tell you what you want it to tell you a lot of the time. Um, so we've had a few examples there where where we've looked at the data and the data has told us that lots of people are going there. So we think, well, that must be working really well because lots of people are going there. But then you look at the feedback and you realize that lots of people are going there, but they don't want to be there. They actually want to be somewhere else and they can't find that other place. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if we don't, if we don't use the different sources of insight, then we can, you know, look at the data and go, we're, we're awesome. When actually we've, we've completely stuffed something up, um, so it's it's about using it, I think, as part of a mix. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, it, you know, yes, it's asking the right questions and it's being very careful about how you interpret the results. I like the idea of of using it to validate stuff more. Yeah. You know, as much as anything else, I think that's a nice nice way of viewing it. You know, are we correct in this hypothesis? Is there data to back that up? Kind of thing. So it's that hypothesis-driven design, which yes. I think is really important. And that's where doing doing research as well and having the designer and the researcher and the, um, the analyst kind of all working together is really powerful because, you know, you can identify a problem in, um, in usability testing and say, we think this is a problem. You look at the analytics and you go, yes, it looks like it's definitely a problem. And then you sit down with the designer and go, okay, how are we going to fix here's some ideas and then you can kind of sit down together and go okay so if this is fixed this is what we would expect to see we'd expect to see this in usability testing we'd expect to see this in the analytics and you know that just gives you a much more kind of rigorous way of making sure that you are actually solving problems and that you're not just shifting deck chairs Mm. i mean one of the challenges you must face in fact you touched on this earlier is that you must reach a point with some of the problems that you're trying to solve where it's not just within your remit to solve them. So, for example, if you're doing something like, I don't know, tax discs, for example, um, you know, there's, you could, you can create the ability to do apply for road tax, all of the rest of it, but that's going to go into a backend system that affects, you know, legacy stuff that's been around for years and, and not just from a kind of technical database point of view, but the way that the tax off, you know, the, the road tax people work and, and it affects workflows and all of the rest of it. So how far can you push it? You know, how, how deep do you go into all of this kind of stuff? As far as we possibly can. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. So, I mean, we deliberately talk about digital service design because we understand that the work that we're doing fits into a broader context of the way that services are being delivered. Mm. Uh, and, you know, as, as you know, you go in and you do some usability testing and, and that kind of stuff, you discover loads more issues than what you get just from um, 
just from you know, problems that the interface is causing. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so this is this is why we try to um, make sure that we are bringing along colleagues from other parts of the organisation and not just kind of confining it to digital. So you know we want to we want to try to make sure that uh, we've got policy people coming along uh, that we've got the, the people kind of at the service management level coming along that we've got you know I mean things like security cause us all all manner of problems all the time um, but you just get the security guy to come along and see the problems and it's amazing how, how they can just go well actually we don't really need to do that we could do this instead um, and, and problem solved yeah. but that's, but unless you can get that person to come and, and feel as though they're part of the team and, and to, uh, to, you know, to observe what the actual experience is. And it's so much better for them to come along and see it for themselves than it is for you to go back and kind of present it to them. Uh, it's, you tend to get a, a much better response because they, you know, you, you're not, you're not kind of railroading them into having to make a decision or, or sort of putting in. I'm in a situation where it looks like they've done something wrong and you've discovered it. You don't want to be, you kind of don't want to be the, the usability police as such. Yeah, you want uh, them to discover the problem for themselves almost. Exactly. And to be able to say, oh, I know how we can solve that rather mm. than you going, there is a problem that you've caused. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, that's, you know, that's kind of really getting, getting those people to come along and, and observe is really, really, really useful. It's part of the reason that we try not to have um, teams or job titles that include the term UX. We try not to have a UX team or we try not to have UX designers and UX researchers and UX this and that or the other um, is because of the massive impact that people in policy and um, mm. and procurement and security and all, you know, just to name three, but there's loads more. Um, and, you know, you can imagine how this would play out in a commercial environment as well. Yeah. You know, there's, there, there's, there's often people who have got a huge, huge impact on the user experience. Um, and I know I just, it's, it's kind of, it's much easier for you to say we're all responsible for the user experience if somebody's job title isn't user experience designer, user experience architect, or user experience manager, or the user experience team. I think it's much easier for people to kind of dial out of that and go, well, I'm, I'm just a lawyer. Yeah, it's not my problem. Exactly, exactly. So if you, if you kind of really believe that user experience is the responsibility of the entire team, as we do, then it doesn't really make sense to have a team who's called user experience. Which I, I totally agree with, but I can think of two potential problems that I'm interested in how you guys solve. One is um, if nobody is, if everybody is responsible, nobody is, if that makes sense. The problem that, you know, of, of, of things falling between the gaps because there's, there's, you know, nobody that's got ownership over that. And the other potential problem is if you're including all of these people, and I totally understand and accept that that's a good idea, how do you remain agile? How do you keep the the speed and momentum going with what sounds like a lot of meetings so the person who's ultimately responsible in our case is going to be the service manager so the person okay. who's ultimately responsible for the service is ultimately responsible for the experience and the performance of that service okay so it's their job to make sure that resources are allocated properly and that and that things are prioritized properly so ultimately the for the whole coherent experience they are the ones who are responsible but obviously you still need a good interaction designer a good you know researcher a good front-end developer you need all of the same people that would usually comprise you know what you would call elsewhere a ux team mm -hmm. those people still have got the same responsibilities as they would be acting on normally anyway so I don't think things fall through the cracks as long, you know, and, and what you're doing is you're elevating the responsibility for user experience higher up the hierarchy. Yeah. And I think the higher, the higher up you can get somebody to really take ownership and responsibility for it, the, the better the outcome's going to be. Yeah. And I said, I can see where you're coming from with that. It is it, it, the only thing with pushing it up the hierarchy potentially is that you're only, it's only ever going to get, part of that person's attention 
because they're, they're going to have other responsibilities and stuff. So there's potential risk there, I guess. But the idea of having a service manager, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes entire sense to me. What about this, the, the other issue of, uh, of um, just the, involving that number of individuals in the decision-making process and in, in the team? Does that, how do you prevent that from impacting, you know, kind of speed of movement, so to speak? I think, I, what do I think? I think that it. The answer might be it does and that you just need to live with that. I guess. So here's the thing. The the thing that I'm thinking about is that it's really easy to focus on delivery and saying we've got to deliver lots of stuff and here we are moving the cards across the board. So therefore we're delivering lots of stuff and our velocity is high. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but if if what you're delivering is something that's kind of really fundamentally flawed and you're not actually addressing kind of the key issues that are, are going to define whether or not your project is successful or not successful, then you're gonna you know you're gonna go back and and either fail or have to redo a bunch of stuff anyway. So you're going to have to have those meetings sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, so the earlier you have them, really, the better. And I think the earlier you have them, the shorter and easier they are. The other thing, too, is that if you can get all of the team into a, an experimental mindset uh, and work out ways that you can explore different ways of doing things without having to ultimately commit to them, then people are really much more open to um, making kind of lightweight decisions and, yeah. and, and seeing how they go and coming back and, um, and you know, having the option to change their mind and, mm-hmm. and you know, having learned a little bit more. So you don't, you don't have to sit down in a really kind of hardcore, heavy-duty meeting to make the decision. You can kind of, you can, you, you know, you just need to make sure that everybody is aware of what the problem is, come up with some ideas of how you might solve it, start seeing kind of how feasible and successful they're going to be, and then revisit it again. Um, and as long as those people are kind of actively engaged in the project on a regular basis anyway, it's, it kind of, you know, it's doesn't, it does, I, it's not been my experience that you end up having loads and loads more meetings than you would otherwise have. I think that the the key there that I that I really liked what you just said then was this thing of uh, you know it is you're not including these people to the point where they have to sign off finally and commit themselves in blood to this mm. and I think that really does make things much more fluid and much more lightweight when people don't feel that they're signing their life away and committing them something to you know to to something major that may come back and bite them you know i totally agree that people are a lot more flexible in you know when they don't have that pressure placed upon them yeah and i think also the continuous involvement throughout the project is really important Mm. if you if they have to come into a room and be brought up to speed and convinced Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing then that's really time consuming yeah but if they kind of if they acknowledge that there is an issue because they've been aware of it by coming along to sessions and you know being actively involved in the team you can skip that whole part of the meeting and just start getting into okay how what what are some things that we can do yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we need to kind of draw it to a close, but I could carry on talking about this kind of stuff forever because, you know, it's stuff that certainly Headscape encounters a lot and, and I do as well. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about it. And thank you for, for spending the time talking with us. Yeah, thank great. you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that was our interview with Lisa. I am now sure that everyone that listening to this show is in complete agreement that she's amazing. So that's Lisa. <laughs> yeah, and, every, and everyone wants to have a whole team of user researchers. Yes. Or what I could do with a team of user researchers. I don't know, but I'm sure it'd be good. Cool. <laughs> it research things. Well, I'd research stuff. I would research the hell out of stuff. <laughs> I would know so much about users. You, you research couldn't. things to within an inch of their lives. I would do. It would be research Geddon or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about our second sponsor. Our second sponsor is Media Temple. Um, you can check the, the thing I want you to check out this week. So stop whatever you're doing. Oh no, you're listening to this podcast. After you finish listening to this podcast, go and check out Media Temple's new WordPress hosting service. I think I need this. 
actually i think what i've got at the moment for boag world might be a bit overkill and this might be better suited to me but i'm lazy and probably won't get around to moving but anyway um it's a new wordpress hosting service and they've got a lovely little kind of package that they give you ideally suited if you run a wordpress site so they ha- they also just kind of throw in as an aside google apps okay which obviously i'm using in order to do my email and, and that kind of stuff and you guys at headscape use it as well hmm. but but as part of their kind of wordpress package you've got automated wordpress updates that just kind of happen which is wonderful they've got they're constantly scanning your plugins to see if there's any malicious plugins that you ought to remove um, you even they even throw in an SSL certificate, that, which these days is really important because, of course, Google have started to take into a, account um, uh, your, whether you're a secure website or not in terms of their ranking. So that's a really cool um, added thing they throw in. It has daily backups, which as someone that, as I said last week, show completely ballsed up my website. Um, Daily backups just being done in the background would be very nice indeed. I mean, we do backups, but obviously, but it's nice that WordPress do it. Sorry, Media Temple do it automatically for you. And then there's this whole kind of set of developer tools that allow you to design, build and deploy um, your WordPress websites like a pro. So they've got one click staging. They've got site cloning, um, SSH access, Git integration. Um, all built into this kind of single nice custom control panel that looks really good. So if you fancy trying that out, there's a special discount code that you can use as Boag World Listener, which is the promo code BOAG, B-O-A-G, which you can use um, to get 25% off your web hosting. Go to boagworld.com forward slash media temple and enter that <laughs> promo code um, at startup and you will, sorry, sign up, not startup, <laughs> sign up. Um, and then you'll get 25% off of that amazing deal. So I wonder if I'm allowed to use my own promo code. That's See, an what, interesting one. Hmm. I think I mean? want to. Yeah, you're, I'm sure you could use it. It's whether you should. Yes. I might have to ask politely if I'm allowed to. Because <laughs> I really, this package is perfect for me. But anyway, Marcus, do you have a joke for us? I do. I, had, I found um, a Tommy Cooper Twitter um, uh, account i right. don't think it is actually tommy cooper because he's dead he is dead so that would be quite remarkable but it's just an endless source of tommy cooper jokes ah R- rather good <coughs> did me. you find that yourself or did someone send that to you i found it all by myself well done have you been getting any jokes through since our appeal uh i some one person sent me the uh, sent me some jokes but a couple of them i've said before and another one wasn't i didn't think it was funny so oh um, I'm quite hard to please on the jokes front, even though I said earlier how easy I am to please. So we need we need more jokes to Marcus at yes. headscape.co.uk. Yes, please. So go on then. Drum roll. I went, I went to the doctor's with jelly and custard stuck in my ears. He asked, "What seems to be the problem?" So I said, "I'm a trifle deaf." Yeah, <laughs> it's Tommy Cooper is kind of. <laughs> better tommy cooper jokes are better when they're told by tommy cooper by tommy cooper yeah there is something about his delivery hey i know i because some people might not know tommy cooper right so Mm. we need to put there must be videos of tommy cooper on youtube oh so i'm gonna i'm gonna meg who does the transcriptions for this show hello meg um could you find us a tommy cooper video on youtube because i'm too lazy to do it myself and so i'm gonna get meg to do it so I do another one? And put it in show notes. Yeah, do another one. I visited the offices of the RSPCA today. It's tiny. You couldn't swing a cat in there. <laughs> now, that's funny. Of course, you do need to know that the RSPCA are a kind of Royal Society for the Protection of Animals. <laughs> I like that one. That's yes. very good. That, there you that, go. Yeah, well done. You've made me happy now. <laughs> All right, Marcus. Well, uh, go away because I, I've got a distinct feeling you're going to infect me over the phone. Which no, I'm, be... I'm way past being contagious and all that. Yeah, malarkey. but just listening listening to your cough is disgusting enough. Snivelly me. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm all right. I'm fine. But yes, so, all right, we'll have a lovely time in the West Country. Yes, I will. Say and, hello um, to my ancestors. I will. and My ancestors? Uh, yes, that's right, yes, isn't that's it? That's yeah. right, you're right. <laughs> that's all good. 
and then uh, I'll talk to you again next week and our dear listeners as well. Alright, bye. Bye. Bye, Brad. Bye.